0: Our Father, we give you thanks for the beauty of this day and the loveliness of this time of year, the wonder and the change in the foliage and um, the anticipation of uh, the coming of winter. Um, uh, It can be a bleak time, but it can be a time of stark beauty as well. And I pray it always helps us to open our eyes to... uh, the Wonders of the Created Order and the Cycle of Seasons, and we thank you for the season that we've been studying this wonderful work, and as we come to a close tonight, we give you thanks again for Dr. Ferguson, uh, lifetime of uh, the use of his great gifts and the development of them in careful study and then faithful service to your church. And we pray that you would continue to bless him in his labors. And we pray that we might better walk with Christ because of the time we've spent in the upper room. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Um, some wonderful person, uh, uh, probably a regular donor uh, of, uh, to Ligonier, has contributed a fund to, um, let me look, to give 10,000 pastors a copy of Lessons from the Upper Room. Um, and, uh, I now have two emails to that effect asking me if I want one, and, um, So I thought I'd ask you all, if you know of any pastor or church leader there saying that would be interested in this, I could forward uh, these emails. I take it since they sent me two. I have a right to, and it says I can forward them to anybody I want. Um, So if you know anybody or think of that, um, let me know and I'll be happy to to forward them on. Um, Well, let's begin. Final chapter 13, he prays for me. I'll read our text John seventeen twenty to twenty six. I do not do not ask for these only, but also for the, those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, and uh, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire also that whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that I have been given. Uh, that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made them to know your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, there's our text. Um, And... uh, the, um, Dr. Ferguson begins by noticing the sensibility we often have, that after a, a study of a book or a, a great text, we, we feel like we've only just begun and that there's so much more to learn. And uh, he says, I'm sure that's the way we all feel uh, about this study, that uh, this is just scratching the surface. There's so much more that we could get out of it. And, uh, but it certainly has been a deeply enriching survey in what uh, we have taken up. Um, he does a little bit of review, uh, mentions uh, uh, David Ch- 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 Chaitreus, a Lutheran theologian, who may be the first one who have u- used this uh, the time turtle t- <laughs> title, Jesus' High Priestly Prayer. Um, But whether that's appropriate and why no one else noticed it before, whether John thought of it that way, uh, he certainly has shown us that um, the prayer follows the three stages of ministry of the Jewish high priest on the Day of Atonement. And uh, therefore, it seems like a fitting way to think about uh, the chapter. And so we've seen that Jesus prayed for himself. Um, He has prayed for his uh, apostles and now at the closing, as the priests would pray for the people. But the striking thing here is that Jesus just doesn't pray for the immediate people of his ministry. But rather his vision extends far beyond into the future. And he includes in his prayer all who will come to know Jesus through the apostles' word. And that is quite a striking thing. Um so that approximately the prayer was certainly uh, answered in the events of uh, the actually apostles and the new testament letters but the point is that um, if i'm a believer jesus has included me in this prayer and that really is a remarkable uh, blessing um, both to understand and to Uh, realize the significance of it in our lives. Um, And what he prays, uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to argue, uh, gives us an indication of what he hopes for from us as his people. Uh, It teaches us something of how to live. And the first thing that's perfectly clear is that he prays for our unity. This is page one. Seven, or excuse me, page uh, 213. He says, I do not ask for these only, that is the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, uh, that they may be one just as you and I are one and so on. Now here, Dr. Ferguson makes a very important point. Um, he says, Jesus is not thinking of a grand worldwide organizational unity. Um, is anybody having any trouble with the uh, broadcast here? No. All right, I just got a funny sign about me being discontinued, but I'm just going to ignore it. Um, the, um, he's not thinking about a grand worldwide institutional or organizational unity. Uh, This text is very often used in uh, the ecumenical movement um, and uh, even among Orthodox people. Uh, The ecumenical movement uses it to say that's what we ought to be working for, one gigantic church. Um, And uh, even conservatives who don't buy that idea use it typically to bludgeon Uh, the visible church, to say, nevertheless, you ought to be working for visible organizational unity. And Dr. Ferguson wants to wean us off that idea, Um, um, because the unity that he's talking about is a uh, spiritual vitality um, patterned after the personal relationship of the Father and the Son. Uh, It is a fellowship in the Spirit. And since every believer is indwelt by the same Spirit, our fellowship mirrors the fellowship of the Father and the Son. On 2.14, Dr. Ferguson wants to insist there's nothing in the world like this particular unity. It is, properly speaking, uh, unique, sui generis, alone of its kind. Um, All other relationships in this world are uh, rooted in common interest or commitment. But the unity of the disciples is supernatural. In other words, uh, the, the unity of believers is a fact. Accomplished by the Spirit of God. It is not an achievement of the church. It is not an achievement of uh, the individual believer. Our confession of faith beautifully gets this point in chapter 26, uh, 1. Let me put that in the chat so you can see it. Um, the... Um, the opening of the chapter on the communion of the saints, all saints, every one of them, that are united to Christ, their head, there's union with Christ and that's worked by the spirit. And by faith have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties in public and private as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. This is, uh, again, a place where folk often go very wrong. They think that um, the unity and fellowship of the Church is an achievement by our efforts. The wonderful truth is it's already been accomplished through our union with Christ. In union with Christ, we're united to one another. Our work is to make that visible in the world, to see it the potential that's there and ours grow and bear fruit wonderfully in the world. And that uh, reverses our normal sensibility about such a thing. Paul?
1: Dave, would it be the case, then, that this is not a prayer for the visible church. It's a prayer for the elect.
0: Uh, is that... No right? and no. Okay. <laughs> uh, hold off that question. I'm going there. Okay. Fair <laughs> but, <laughs> all right. Uh, Chambers. I don't know if this will wade into that,
1: but the thing that I kept thinking while I was reading was the number of people who, have, are, who are believers who've talked to me during this time of pandemic and all that's gone on in the last two years about the church's response. And so what, what, you, what Ferguson said and you reiterated that it's not an achievement by our efforts, how, how does it manifest itself in the midst of difficulties like this?
0: We'll try and get to that too, Bonnie. Just hang in there with me. <laughs> I'm going to try and uh, create a web that you'll be caught in and can't get out of. But I have to do it strand by strand. <laughs> um, but at least you can see this much. There's no doubt, but that is what Jesus thinks. That, there's no doubt that uh, the Bible teaches that when I'm united to Christ... I am ipso facto united to other Christians. It's a reality that exists, it's supernaturally granted, and what the Christian life is about is seeing that more and more realized in our experience. Um, You you see this in the great text um, of Paul in Colossians, there's neither Jew nor Greek, etc. Well, the fact is there were Jews and Greeks, so he has to mean something other than to flatly contradict reality. And his point then is because Christ is all and in all, the fellowship of Christians transcends all natural and social distinctions and divisions. Um, the uh, We have an experience of those who are not of the world. Um, uh, And so it ought to transform. This is uh, touching on how do we deal with problems. Um, We we rehearse in our own minds the reality, the invisible reality, but a, a reality more true than the one we see, that with a sister in Christ, someone who shares life with the Father and the Son, Christ indwells her through the Spirit. And um, we have a participation in each other's lives that is finally going to bring us heavenward, where we will live together in a world of love forever. And at the same time that that unity is there, we are different. The work of the Spirit doesn't make us into automatons or uh, some kind of cookie-cutter. Uh, outcome, but rather the spirit works according to the uh, reality of how God has created me with my particular personality and experience and so on, and someone else. And so it means that we learn to celebrate what surely is God's purpose, that we have a unity and diversity in the life of the church. Um, the uh, at the bottom of 214, Dr. Ferguson puts it this way. That is why, although we retain our diversity of nationality, skin color, age, education, social background, and much else, we are one in Christ. So that's the baseline reality that we're talking about here. Um, And... uh, he asks on the top of 2.15, why did Jesus think this was so important? And he goes into a discussion. Oh, let's look at the footnote uh, first um, on the bottom of uh, 2.14. Because this is pretty important. Um, the uh, Is it on 2.14? I think it is. In any case, um, he says we need to understand that the analogy that Jesus draws is not between the unity of believers and the unity of God's being. In other words, he's not saying that because the three members of the Trinity are one being, we are one being with each other. It's not an ontological unity. In fact, that would be disastrous. But rather the analogy is between the nature of the fellowship of the members of the church and the fellowship between the distinct members of the Trinity, the persons of the Father and the Son and so on. So uh, that's a pretty important point to grasp. And some folk have gone wrong uh, when Peter talks about us participating in the divine nature uh, have supposed that to be referring to us becoming godded is the way in the past they would refer to it. But it doesn't mean that at all. It means we participate in the moral nature, in God's holiness. We're being transformed from within, but we remain Finite in creatures. Um, But in any case, uh, Dr. Ferguson wants to uh, make a point here that uh, our unity is crucial to our witness to Christ. Um, The church is uh, the chief agency for spreading the gospel. And the fellowship that Christians have with one another has a powerful um, uh, evangelistic impact. And there are two problems that Dr. Ferguson thinks are corrected by recognizing this. One, that witness is not just personal witness. That became a a hot deal in the last half of the 20th century, personal evangelism. Um, But uh, the... um, The fact is, the chief witness, as it were, is the witness of the church, individual persons within it, but the church united to one another in love, creating a community of those who are indwelt by the Spirit and are being transformed into the image of Christ. You see, the the wonder of who Christ is, is only properly seen in the church, Uh, and uh, that's why um, uh, Dr. Ferguson thinks this is such an important corrective. Um, the second is that um, the uh, uh, evangelism to some degree has seemed to be the work of non-ecclesiastical agencies, rather parachurch uh, institutions. Um, and um, again, this is a serious mistake because the um, uh, the uh, th- these institutions don't have the capacity to show forth the fullness of the fellowship of the church. Uh, They're typically age-segregated as opposed to the church having all of the different ages of the the life of God's people. Um, They uh, uh, have nothing of the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. That's part of the way that uh, the congregation is nourished in Christ. Uh, They have nothing of church discipline and accountability to officers which, again, is part of the witness to Christ, that Christ is building his church. All of those things bear witness to the one who's building his church, and absent those things, uh, the witness is distorted. Uh, Steve?
1: Yeah, I think you just said, made, made the point to I was going to try to get clarification on, but, uh, but I'll ask anyway. Um, so when you're saying it's the church that is the... So you're not... and Ferguson's not ruling out individual witnesses. Oh, no, he's no.
0: Not,
1: he's just saying that's not the primary. Means.
0: That's right. right. That's right.
1: So, but, in but fact, when, the, if I... What you just said, what you just said is, is with... It's really observing the church as a body and how that body functions in relationship to one another and in relationship God, that that is that is the more powerful witness to the work of Christ in the in the in the life of uh, in the life of the church, so because because you can see it in all of its aspects, and, and and really you just get a small little piece of it where you see an individual believer. Yes, and change, but you don't really get the whole fullness of everything.
0: Right, and and the point is. The individual believer is the entryway into the fullness of Christ as he is revealed into the church. In other words, the individual believer talking to his friend about the Lord and so on, what he wants to do is say, come and see what Christ is doing in building his kingdom. Come and see the marvel of lives, very different, but united in love and care for one another. And so that powerfully confirms the earlier witness that was just from an individual. Do you see that?
1: Yep. Thanks.
0: Yeah, so I, I think this was a very um, useful, very strong section of uh, the book. Um, the um, uh, So on page 216, uh, summing it up, in view... In our church, in our Lord's prayer, is the church family, not the isolated individual. Is God's chief evangelistic instrument. It is the sphere in which the effect of the gospel is most fully reflected, and the transformations and the transformation salvation creates is put on display. Um, It's changing us, not just as individuals, but it's changing us with respect to others, respect to others who are very different from us and we might be alienated from, except for the fact that there's this supernatural reality at work that makes us one people. Um, So, again, in a world of uh, individualism, fragmentation and alienation, he says it's the fellowship of the church family that non-Christians will most powerfully encounter the kingdom of God and the new creation uh, that's breaking into the world. So let me pause there. Are there further questions on that point um, or comments or uh, objections or anything you'd like to raise? All right. Um, Then let's press on. The um, the cause of the unity he takes up, uh, Doctor Ferguson takes up on two seventeen. It is uh, uh, oh third, fourth paragraph down, last sentence. Its cause is his giving to his disciples the glory that is that his father first gave him. And he goes into some uh, uh, depth of analysis here in eight points, Um, but it's all straightforward and we've covered it uh, to some degree um, already in the exposition to this place. So I don't feel a need to elaborate very much on it. Um, But the... um, uh, The... um, on 2.19, he talks about the Lord's Prayer in John 17 being answered in the Jerusalem's church. And he makes a couple of interesting points there. Um, in Acts 5, great fear comes upon the whole church. None dare, of the rest dared to join them, but they were held at the same time in high esteem. And then in the 14th verse, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. This is kind of a little bit contradictory here. Um, but a very potent sentence follows. This is a different pattern from the one that became, in much late 20th century and early 21st century, speaking and writing about evangelism. There, seeker sensitivity dominated. Here, in Jesus, Here, Jesus' prayer was answered by a sense of awe that was present in the church. So, the holiness of God's people, a sense of awe among them, and a complex response from non-Christians, some not daring to join because sinners conflicted with God's holiness. Um, And yet, at the same time, floodgates open, and there are many, many conversions. Um, So, rather than the idea that you have to uh, remake the gospel to make it palatable to unbelievers it was precisely the otherness of the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit that uh, created this community and created it to be other than what non-believers would want to be a part of at left as they were dead in trespass and sin um So, a couple of interesting points there. On page 220, we get to what Jesus wants for us, and um, he he contrasts Christ's prayer here of what he wills, and Christ's prayer at Gethsemane and what he wills. And in a nice uh, conjunction about four paragraphs in, he notes these two prayers are so different, but they are intimately connected. Jesus is able to pray as he does in the upper room. This is what I will for my people, only because of what he will pray in the garden, not as I will. He was willing to drink the cup of God's judgment, um, and that made it possible that he could say uh, that I want you to give me, uh, to be with me, my people, to see uh, my glory. Um, Very powerful point. Page 221, facing the greatest crisis in his life, Jesus was thinking about us. His will was that we should see him in his glory. Thus Paul speaks, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He prayed just that that would be so. So then the question is raised, why is this so important to Jesus? And uh, in a nice meditation, uh, Dr. Ferguson answers that question. Well, you can see why it would be important because um, the disciples and we, have been those who witnessed his shame. And his desire is to see what the purpose of that shame was, that it would end up in glory, in the pleasure of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, again, a very powerful point. Um, and he um, has a little uh, colloquy here that... Uh, On page 222, um, he says, even from a human point of view, we can understand that Jesus wants no less um, than this fellow, Pat Cash, who had wanted to be glorified among his teammates. And so he prays Holy Father, I bring to you these 11 men who have been with me all the way. I alone will gain the victory, but you gave them to me and to be with me and to be sent out with your word. These are my friends. They will see me despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, experiencing the shame of the cross. But Father, I want them to see me in my glory. I want them to see the wonder of your eternal love for me. I want them to be with me and us forever. Very powerful, uh, very moving meditation. Uh, thus we come to the end of the chapter um, and he, he, uh, a little litany of beautiful things to gather together succinctly. Um, things that we should take away from this. Remember Christ prayed for us. Remember that the Father always hears his prayers. Remember he made your his Father's name known to you and brought you into his family. Remember that he loves you with the love that the Father has for Him. And remember that He will dwell in you through His Holy Spirit. He's given you His Word, and He wants you to be with Him to see His glory. All of this so that His joy might be in us and our joy uh, might be full. Um, A grand summary of some of the powerful points that were made um, in this prayer and in uh, uh, the upper room Uh, I have a few more things to cover but let me stop there as we've uh, gotten to the end of the text and see if you have any questions about anything that's been said there or um, comments or reflections yourself on um, what a close reading of that prayer has Help you to see or realize about your Christian life? Well, think about that. We can come back to it. I'd love to hear from you on it. Um, Now, two additional points um, that I I need to bring up. because um, uh, this chapter has presented us with uh, presented me with uh, the only two points of any significance that I disagree with Dr. Ferguson on. And um, I want to explain a little bit about it. And, uh, but w- what I want to say is that even though I disagree with the occasion to some extent of what Dr. Ferguson has taught with respect to this last prayer. I think everything he said is true. It's just true from other texts. Everything he said about evangelism, evangelism in in relation to this, everything he said about the unity of uh, uh, our unity being a witness and so on. Uh, But let me try and explain if you would where uh, I think um, there's a better way to think about some of these texts. So the first one, uh, that we should be one so that the world may believe uh, that you have sent me. Um, Dr. Ferguson spoke about evangelism in relationship to this verse. And as I said, everything he said about evangelism, I think, was wonderfully sound. But I don't think it flows from this passage the way that he thought it was. So the first thing I want to say is this: um, we have to think about what does what function the word "world" plays in this text. It's clearly a personification. What's in view? created order itself, just the earth, the world of men and women, the world of men and women in rebellion against God. Well, we know, and Dr. Ferguson has reminded us that that's John's typical usage, that the world is the sphere uh, um, uh, of men and women in rebellion against God under the prince of the power. Uh, of the air. Um, So, if that's what the world means, then we have to ask ourselves, um, when he says so that the world will know, in what sense? When is the world, is it part of the world? So, in each generation is is it part of the world that knows that uh, Jesus is f- from God because of the unity of believers um, and in fact, given that the church organizationally and visibly has so so often been at odds uh, the you know <laughs> I think the first time in history Christians killed each other. It was over a debate as to what day to celebrate Easter on. Um, the, uh, so, is it generational? Or is it the, the world uh, as it some way will be finally taken of consummately of all the people that have ever lived. Um, uh, And then we have to ask further, um, what does it mean to say that the world will believe? Does that mean that the world will come to saving faith? But if the world is just all men and women in rebellion against God, that leads to universalism. If the world's going to believe because of the unity of the church. Um, the, uh, it's there, Paul, that um, some people have said that the world is the world of the elect, the world of elect. Women in men and women in rebellion against God to avoid the implication of universalism. Um, but that does not seem to fit the text at all. Um, the uh, and and I know Dr. Ferguson doesn't believe in universalism, so what folks in this, and it's probably the majority way of reading the text, uh, Dennis Johnson his commentary, a host of them. Um, um, uh, And and the statement they make is true. Here's a quote. The oneness of God's people is a vital ingredient to the credibility of the gospel. That is absolutely true. Uh, Listen to B.B. F.F. Bruce. He's even closer to universalism in the way he puts it. The world will learn from the witness of the disciples' love. Then the usurper's control will be thrown off and the world at last acknowledge its rightful Lord will respond in faith to his love for it. I mean, that is very close to universalism. But um, I think that the way we have to read it is that... The world is acknowledging the truth of the matter, who Jesus is, without any saving trust in the messenger. Um, the, the world will believe, uh, in one writer's words, in a negative, incriminating sense. It means they'll be compelled to recognize the reality that Jesus was Lord and was building his church. It's analogous, you remember when we looked at John 16, 8, about the Spirit, the helper who would come, it's his world-convicting work of sin. Calvin put it this way, some explained the word world to mean the elect who at that time were still dispersed. But since the word world, throughout the whole of this chapter, denotes the reprobate, I am more inclined to adopt a different uh, opinion. Here, the word believe is being used uh, in a loose sense uh, as a substitute for the word to know. The world will come to know by the unity of God's people. Um, And uh, unbelievers will be convinced by their own experience of seeing the heavenly and divine glory of Christ among his people. The consequence is that believing, they do not believe, because this conviction does not penetrate into the inward feelings of the heart. That reading of it saves uh, the unhappy possibilities uh, that seem to flow from the other readings. But we still have to um, say, well, but when does the world see this? And I think the answer is, and Dr. Uh, Ferguson has very clearly shown us that great parts of this prayer are eschatological. It's not a matter of chronology. There are parts of it that, in fact, anticipate the final consummation. So his longing that we should be with him in glory, for example, pervades this text. It's a profoundly eschatological prayer. And, and so I would say that, that when we ask when is the world going to see this and be convicted, it's going to be when Christ returns again the world now left in its unbelief with respect to faith is going to so marvel at the trans, transformation of god's people when christ returns that they will the world will be anybody left in unbelief meaning no saving faith will be absolutely persuaded that christ is the lord of glory and that he has built a church and he's going to reign among his glorified people That's what I think uh, Jesus has in view in the prayer. Uh, But again, let me say, I think everything that Dr. Ferguson said about evangelism and the role of the church as confirming the truth, uh, because it evidences it so, even in this age, I think all of that is true, and we can uh, gain the lessons from it nonetheless. Let me pause there before I press on to the next point that I wanted to raise anybody a thought or concern question
1: Uh, it's just it reminds me of something you said before it's just over and over this keeps reminding me how unselfish Jesus was Mm. on, on the night when in any human sense he had every right to be selfish
0: yes very powerful Chambers.
1: Dave, the point you just made um, or the explanation of what he meant by world and what he meant by no and and the future focus of his prayer um, taken wrongly that might tend to cut the nerve so to speak of our energy to pursue unity here and now Um, but is this also uh, not another example isn't it also an example of our need to know this wonderful harmony that will no, in, in the last day, with all believers from every tribe and tongue.
0: Yes, but to also seek
1: to model that or um, uh, demonstrate it to an unbelieving world here and now.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, okay. It just it helps us to see that our brokenness, and, and in other words, the the other reading. Of it, I said to a fellow who was advocating that point of view. I said, "Look, on your reading of this, since the church is fractured into denominations, and since um, uh, that there's on your reading of it, there's never been a time when Jesus's prayer is answered yeah. in the history of the world, and there won't be until he comes again." Whereas on this reading. The prayer is answered in that the reality of union with Christ um, establishes a reality of union among believers that does manifest itself in part in this broken world. But it's that reality that's going to finally uh, blossom into glory when Christ returns. And we still are called... And and remember, it's it's not unlike sanctification. Um, We are called to be perfect. But we know we're not going to be perfect in this world. And if we think we can be perfect, we're making a terrible mistake. But the realization that I'm only going to be incrementally advancing in holiness doesn't cut the nerve of my desire to do so but it just helps me to see that um, my advance in sanctification is aspirational and that aspiration should be as high as possible but with the realization that my grasp of those aspirations is not going to be complete in this life but it will be complete when christ returns again
1: that's yes. That's
0: the attitude we are to have collectively as a body. Yes, yes, absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Dave, one other thought? Yes. Question. Um, before he says that the world will know, he does say that they may become perfectly one. And just sort of following on what you said before, the only time I can think of when the church will be perfectly one is at on the last day. Yes. I, I Obviously, I don't know what whether the the Greek there lends itself to that reading or not, but just I would I would think it supports the reading that that you mentioned. Yes, um, in
0: fact, exactly. yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, the word that's translated perfectly there often is translated accomplished that something has been accomplished. It's, it's come to complete fruition. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that that's definitely the case, Chris. Any other thoughts on that? Well, let me press on. Um, with respect to the, the question of unity in this age of the Church, uh, Dr. Ferguson has said, powerfully that it's not institutional, it's not a matter of the visible church um, and I think he's absolutely right there and that's ninety percent of the way that you need to go to have this text not be destructive of the gospel, which is it, which is what it is in the hands of uh, the ecumenical movement um, so what what shall we say well Some parts of the gospel message are absolutely essential to salvation. And biblical faith is only present where that gospel message has been received. Um, There are other parts of the scripture's teaching um, that, though not essential to salvation, are essential to the well-being of the church. Because our master has instructed uh, the church to teach his disciples to obey all that he has commanded. The older uh, theologians distinguish here between the essa, the essence of the church, and the bene essa, the well-being of the church. The All of scripture leads to that end. But some scriptures constitute the essa itself, that without which not. And others have to do with the flourishing and prospering of that community. Now, think with me through a couple of steps here. This duty to teach all that Christ has commanded, has to be understood in relationship to uh, the liberty of conscience and the right and duty of private judgment. That is to say that the meaning of the word, as the recipient understands it in good conscience, is the word of Christ to him. And if he can't see what the church offers as being the word of Christ, then he can't believe it. Because of imperfections, professed believers sincerely differ as to the correct understanding of the scriptures in some cases. Each one is duty-bound, if he's a teacher, to teach as he understands the word of Christ. And in fact, in this age, there's no infallible arbiter available for the church to sort out the differences between teachers. Now Rome thinks they have one, and that's one of the key roles, that the unity of the church is found in an infallible arbiter that will say what constitutes the only message that the church can believe. But from what I've said, given that there's no infallible arbiter, it follows that it's impossible for professed believers to live in complete institutional or organizational unity with such differences as exist, without their fellowship tending either to indifference with respect to the disputed doctrines or suffering constant theological warfare. In such a state, either truth or peace will be sacrificed. So, uh, you take a a doctrine like whether infants should be baptized. Uh, Folks who hold fully to the core of the gospel in their reading of the Bible over many ages have come out with a difference of opinion on that question. We count ourselves as fellow believers, but we can't live in the same organization. Those who believe in infant baptism and those who don't. Those who don't would think if the church is doing that, they're disobeying Christ every time they baptize a child. And the only way you could live with that is either by saying, oh, well, that doesn't make any difference anyway, by just writing off portions of the scripture or by being uh, ha- having heartburn every time the sacrament is performed. And finally, y- y- you couldn't live that way. So what's the, w- w- what are we to do? Well, what in fact has happened? Professed believers who are agreed in the heart of the gospel, but who differ from one another in matters of real significance, must exist in separate denominations of Christians, charitably respecting each other's right and duty to maintain their differences, so long as they believe that's what Scripture teaches, while affirming that together they make up the visible church. Now, our uh, book of church order, beautiful, and, and I, Presbyterians have historically been the most... Uh, Properly, I hate to even use the word uh, liberal, but liberal in the best sense of the uh, uh, word, meaning broad-minded and generous in looking to the good of others. And our book of church order captures what I've just said beautifully in chapter 2, section 2. Listen to its teaching. The visible unity of the body of Christ though obscured, is not destroyed by its division into different denominations of profession Christians. But all of these which maintain the word and sacraments in their fundamental integrity are to be recognized as true branches of the Church of Christ. Um, The uh, paragraph beforehand, had defined the visible church. Under the gospel, it consists of all those who make profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ together with their children. Um, that's the one visible church, but because of the frailties and, and finitude of this age, we're divided into different denominations. Uh, what What is a denomination? If I say something is denominated, what do I, what do I mean? It, it, it has a name, different names of Christians. That's all it is. And it's because the differences about government, Episcopal or Presbyterian, Presbyterios Episcopas, uh, or about the sacraments or um, uh, other things like that. But those are all part, at least on Presbyterian theory, those are all part of the one visible church, but they have a right to exist because some believers have not been able to see the fullness of scripture in the way that others have, but though they all hold to the common core of the gospel, uh, they have uh, the right of private judgment, they have the uh, liberty of conscience, and so this is why confessions are so important. Um, Each denomination must set forth its understanding of the teaching of Scripture in a confession, uh, meaning their doctrinal statement, their form of government. They do it not for the sake of division, but rather for the purpose of uniting those who are of like mind in fellowship and in mission in a voluntary gathering uh, of of those who would seek to uh, follow the ways of Christ in his community. Um, do, do you see that? So that the high priestly prayer is not a condemnation of denominationalism. Uh, it, it, there's the expectation that all of us, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, um, the uh, uh jackie was Jackie Griffiths was talking to her son, and uh she was thinking of going to an Anglican church because she couldn't find something locally that uh, of the p c a and um the uh she said to him but I am a Presbyterian and uh and your father was a Presbyterian and and uh her son said to her um, uh no, he's not a Presbyterian anymore in heaven. And I said, Jackie, he, he doesn't get it. They're all Presbyterians there. <laughs> uh, the, the, the point is that somebody's got it right, and whoever's got it right, we're all going to be on board with what's right when we get to be with the Lord. Um, but... Uh, In any case, the high priestly prayer uh, doesn't at all undermine the idea of uh, denominations. Denominations are actually a good thing, so so long as we're in this fallen world, because it does keep the supremacy of Scripture. Nobody, by ecclesiastical authority, can be forced to believe or live other than what they think Christ is teaching. And so they have a right to gather into their communities that affirm that that all of us have the duty that hold to the core of the gospel to look upon one another with love, uh, to acknowledge freely their right to have it, but to have good and wholesome uh, conversations about the differences, to to try and overcome them if we could, uh, but to realize that uh, it's entirely consistent with what Christ prays for, that all of us are looking for that great eschatological day when We will be perfectly united before Christ and that will be a testimony to the fallen world that he is the great King of kings and Lord of lords. And they'll be forced to acknowledge it. So uh, I've got a closing word, but let me see if anybody has a um, question, comment. This may have been too much uh, of a burden for these closing minutes, but uh, it's so critical to the way these texts have been used and what they mean that I wanted to bring it up. Questions? Thoughts?
1: Dave, hey, this is Paul. Let me just say I wish... Um, it's a sad irony that the, the wonderful description you've just given of the basis behind denominations is actually to the glory of Christ and yet it's taken in the world to be exactly the opposite a condemnation of Christianity and it's it's uh, sad that we, we can not have set a more clear discussion as you just laid out be more widely understood
0: mm. 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 other thoughts, reflections Dave
1: One quick um, input. This is Bill. Yes. I missed um, the role of of, uh, liberty of conscience and our obligation to follow um, what we find is true in the Word. Uh, After, of course, we've, we've come to the conclusion that we agree with the core of the gospel. I think, I think. Well, for me, I I have to acknowledge that the process of of following that liberty of conscience it is really a process, and in some cases, it takes many many years to um, resolve um, points of difference. Yes. And, and we. As a body, whether we're Presbyterians or uh, or some other denomination, have to behave in that body, knowing that there's people among us who who may be going through this process, yes. and wrestling with some of the non-core issues.
0: Yes, and, absolutely.
1: And an extreme amount of tolerance and grace, I think, is required. And And patience for the Lord to work out what He will in that person's mind. Yes. um, So it's not it's not the flip of a switch. Yes, absolutely.
0: That's a great point, Bill. And uh, you know, I think there sometimes because we don't teach ecclesiastically as ecclesiology as well as we might in the seminary, sometimes our ministers don't understand this. Uh, 20 years ago, I had a minister call me and say, we have some Baptists uh, who are worshiping with us. They love the Reformed faith. There's not a Reformed Baptist church around here, but uh, I think they're sinning by not baptizing their children. And uh, so we need to discipline them or tell them that they can't be here any longer. And I said, no, not at all as long as they're willing to hear the word from your mouth and to keep considering the question, and as long as they're not causing a disruption in the church, they're on a pilgrimage. And there's no better place for them to be on that pilgrimage than in your congregation, to hear the doctrine of baptism beautifully taught and winsomely set before them and to see the outcome of it in people's lives. It's part of the persuasion process. So, that, boy, the points you make are just absolutely sound, Bill, and, and we need to embrace them. Um, with those two provisos, as long as they're open to hearing and to keep considering, and as long as they're peaceable in, in their way of maintaining it in the church, then we, we want them to be with us. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Mm.
0: Well, um, last comment. Uh, Dr. Ferguson so beautifully uh, spoke of the powerful assurance that comes into the life of a believer who considers carefully our Lord's Prayer in the upper room. Um, It is a prayer uh, above every other prayer ever offered that is going to be answered certainly and completely. Christ will be vindicated before the world. The whole body of the elect will be one with him in heaven as a world of love. will be gathered and not one will be lost. And that is a powerful and beautiful uh, realization. Calvin put it this way. This is assuredly a remarkable ground of confidence. For if we believe in Christ through the doctrine of the gospel, we ought to entertain no doubt that we are already gathered with the apostles into Christ's faithful protection so that not one of us will perish. This prayer of Jesus is a safe harbor and whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. Isn't that a great way to put it and a wonderful way to conclude? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the weeks we've had together with Dr. Ferguson's remarkable book. We thank you for these folks who have uh, wanted to get the book out to thousands of people and uh, pray that uh, that effort is successful and that... Others will be blessed as we have been blessed um, in these uh, studies together. And we uh, pray that, um, as we've just been talking about, the ideas would mature in our hearts and minds. We'd become uh, deeper, more fully persuaded, see more uh, broadly the grand implications uh, so that the study, as Dr. Ferguson said, is just the beginning.